So I guess you wonder how we ended up here, as one of the most feared and respected civilizations in the galactic theater. A member of the most powerful coalition in the galaxy, outpacing even the old and corrupt Galactic Senate. Well, let's start with how humanity first got their hands on FTL technology. The year was 2314, the colony on Mars had reached two billion souls, and most of it had been terraformed so the planet could sustain human life without the need for additional life support units. There were mining operations running on the asteroid belt surrounding Jupiter, and it was a comfortable time for humanity. Sure, Earth was being rehabilitated from the nuclear end of World War III, and the Southeast Asian Federation was squabbling with the Western Allied Republic over whom would control the lion's share of the moon's crucial helium-3 deposits. And there were tensions between the newly formed Martian Miners League government of Mars and the Terran factions. Hey, same old. Humans fight, make up, and rebuild. Same way it has been as long as humanity as a whole can remember. So far, we've had no contact with any aliens, unless some wackos in tinfoil hats are to be believed, and nothing had disturbed humanity. It all started when satellites carrying the arrays intended to survey our surrounding space started to go dark. We didn't know it then. We all thought it was some old, long-forgotten Russian satellite that had crashed into them. But there was something going bump in the night. Grand Marshal Gatarin stared listlessly onto the hologram projection of the blue and red planets floating next to each other in the middle of the circular room. She sighs with more than a little resentment as the servant thralls skitter across the meeting room, refilling the officer's drink vessels. She glares into the eyes of the thrall about to refill her glass, and the Dwillian quickly looks down. Its gills and facial tentacles tighten in fear of the reputedly ill-tempered commander's wrath if he was to be seen as the least bit rebellious. With shaking arms it fills her vessel, spilling some of the precious golden liquid onto the martial ceremonial robes. She recoils and slaps the bluish creature to the ground, hissing between scaled lips. Stupid squid! The phalon then proceeds to pour the hillian nectar filling her glass over the thrall's squirming form. The Dwillian screams as the, to it, highly corrosive liquid hisses and boils its skin. The Falon kicks the Dwillian just for good measure. Someone clean up this mess. She seats herself back in her chair. So, where were we? Her glare falls onto her lieutenant, who bows his head in respect. Everything is going as planned. The long-range sensors of the apes has been disabled and our drones avoided detection completely, using the cover of space debris to avoid discovery. The marshal nods. Very good. Are the slave ships in position? She receives an affirmative gesture from her lieutenant. Good, begin the attack. She stands up to retreat to her personal quarters. No need to watch the subjugation of another race of primitives. Her superiors had made special note to nip this species in the bud before it could establish itself properly. The fact that a species from a Category 13 death world would attain interstellar flight was in itself a marvel, and with account for their extraordinary biological faculties, these apes, these... human, would make most excellent warrior thralls. With a little Fala help, of course, a genetic tweak here and a cerebral implant there, and the humans would be a groundbreaking addition to the market which is why she'd had to endure such an excruciating process of blinding them before extraction. After all, a dead slave didn't fetch a high price, and the sale of sentient flesh for the process of eating is far less of a lucrative market. Sergeant Powells was roused from sleep by the shrieking of metal on metal outside his home. His head was pounding, 
and the daylight gushing through the window was nothing short of torment. What came next would be even worse. A loud voice, speaking in broken English, thundered in from outside. All your base are belong to us. Surrender or be annihilated. Powells rolls out of bed just as the message is repeated again and again. He makes his way to the window, looking outside. Outside, everything was deathly still. All the grav trains and private shuttles had stopped, and people were looking out their windows or standing in the streets, all looking at the same thing in the sky. What he saw struck him with bewilderment. Surely this is some sort of prank or a hoax. But there it was, a gargantuan hologram of an entity most reminiscent of the reconstructions of pterodactyls, except that the beak-like snout was much shorter, and it seemed to be clad in some sort of robes. Hovering above the hologram was a large, black, vaguely organic-looking craft. Oblong in shape and patterned with a webbing of some sort, the craft opened up and hundreds of smaller craft depart from its depths. Chaos. The people on the street are running for cover as the dark crafts descend from the heavens. What's the situation, General? The president of the war walks into the briefing room. From the minor stain to his cuff, General Gordon draws the assumption that he had been pulled from lunch with his family when the news hit. Sir, I know this sounds like something out of a science fiction series, but we're under attack from aliens. We have no idea what they want, but they're hostile. The president pauses, looking baffled. Run that by me again, General. We're under attack from what? The general stops after having run his hands through his hair. Aliens. There is a moment's pause. Where did they land? The president asks, a dead serious look on his face. We have confirmed alien presence in Georgia, Washington State, Washington, D.C., France, Britain, Germany. They're already besieging our military bases, and I'm sorry to say, but we've been caught with our pants down. Corporal Qatar was sitting in the landing craft, and even though he would never admit it, he was nervous. He was the commander of one of the finest squads that the Phelan shock troopers had to offer. And should he acquire enough slaves during this assault, he would be richly rewarded. As he started dreaming of future fame and glory, the brutal reality of their current endeavor was setting in. They were landing on a Category 13 death world, and even now the brutal gravity was drawing them closer. All right, men, start up your gravity dampeners. If you die before we set foot on the ground, you will disgrace your family name. The men did as told, and Qatar followed suit. He could feel the inertial dampeners work in overdrive as they were slowing down. They were almost there. Weapons to stun. Now let's catch us some primitives. He closed his faceplate just as the blast doors keeping them separated from the outside folded away. His heart swelled with pride as his squad neatly and in a disciplined fashion streamed out of the transport. He could now see the primitives running before him, and for a moment he felt doubt. The creatures were massive, reaching up to sixty-four CSEIB in height and bulging with muscles, not to mention the way they covered the ground of this monstrous planet with bounds which the athletes of his homeworld would envy replicating in their own gravity. As it was, he and his forces waddled forwards. A primitive tried to run its way from its hiding place behind a metal vehicle of some sort, running away from them. First catch, Qatar thought, and fired a salvo of incapacitating rounds into the creature's center of mass. The thing screamed and fell on the ground, hard. Qatar felt a moment of joy which was then rudely disrupted as the primitive scrambled to its feet and kept fleeing. To Qatar's benefit at least his astonishment did not cripple him for long. 
Another primitive snapped him out of it, as it seemed to fire some sort of combustion-powered weapon that it held in its arms, standing in a window of a second-story home. The projectiles bounce harmlessly off of the energy barrier surrounding the Phalan's armor. The Phalan fired back with the pulsar, but the primitive dived back into the home. Katar sneers with irritation. Weapons on kill. Get me the head of the primitive upstairs. Powell's ducks back into his apartment as the alien fired some energy projectile shit at him. His handgun had proven to be useless against the thing, and now he's doomed for sure. As he peeks outside again, he sees the formation of ferocious silver-shining aliens waddle on into his apartment building. From the looks of it, they're rather supposed to walk on all fours rather than their back legs. But the gun thing in their arms forces them to waddle on upright. Powell considers his options. Like hell, he's surrendering to some alien lizards. Let's show them what humanity is made of. He flips over his desk, creating some sort of cover. Probably won't stop a projectile, but hey, better than just his pajamas. The hangover is still making his head pound. Man, I would kill for some bacon right now. Then he chuckled at his thought. Well, it seems he'll have to save his own bacon first. Katar walked up to the door following his soldiers. Breach the door, I want that creature dead. One of his followers nod and places a breaching charge on the door and steps aside. Powell is crouching behind the desk, his dad's vintage baseball bat beside him and the gun in hand. He checks his ammo. Five rounds left. Dang it, Dagnabbit. Well, it's do or die. Probably die, but he could always hope. The door explodes inwards, and Powell barely manages to duck down as shrapnel and debris flies overhead. They're here. Fuck. Fuck, fuckity, fuck, fuck. Adrenaline is pumping through his veins and he grabs the baseball bat. He leaps up, bounding for the enemy positions. I will rip your head off and shit down your necks. He fires all the rounds in the pistol as he closes the small gap between them. Baseball bat raised high, expecting to be ripped apart by a hail of fire any second. What? What is this? No, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Katar recoils in true primal fear as the primitive behemoth launches itself at them. This creature is supposed to be a sentient, so why is it throwing itself towards them? Why isn't it running away? What is that ungodly glint in its eyes? He doesn't have time to recover before the creature is upon them. The wooden club in the thing's hand impacts one of his soldiers. His shield wasn't meant to absorb this type of impact. The crude weapon implement makes a thunking sound as it impacts the soldier's power armor. The soldier's entire head caves in, and the body is thrown into the wall, purple ichor leaking everywhere. This is death. This is insane. That was the first thought that ran through Gatarin's head. Merely an hour after the ground assault had began, she was roused from her peaceful meditation most rudely, and now she could do nothing but listen to the reports in awe. The primitives were fighting back. In all her cycles of command, it had never happened before. The invasions had always played out the same way. The primitives either fall to their knees, accepting the Phalan as their gods and rulers, or they were wiped out as they fled. But these, humans, they had fought back. Desperately at first, but now with a fury never before seen. The humans' mainline weaponry was nigh useless against the protective barriers of the Phalan marines. Projectiles bouncing off the electromagnetic barriers harmlessly. But humans had learned and at a speed that can be seen as nothing but frightful, they adapted. Gordon stands on the command floor with a stern face. Report. How have the new tactics worked? 
a radio tech sitting by a station looking up. We're receiving reports from Chicago now. Apparently the citizens have driven back the invaders under the command of a SGT. Powell, sir. The theory seems to have been correct, sir. They have no protection from close quarters combat and they're excessively frail. Gordon smiles. Excellent. Make sure to secure alien tech before this battle is over. I want to have our tech boys learn everything about the aliens ASAP. The tech nods, turning back to his station and relaying the order. Gordon smiles to himself. All things considered, they're doing pretty well. Powell stand in the streets littered with purple blood and crushed aliens. He felt a pang of sorrow as he looks over the street. This fight had been costly. Even though the aliens' rifles pretty much never killed straight off the bat, Powell was still covered in burns left by the energy pulses. His body ached. His head was killing him. He was going to punch James for dragging him off to the club last night. Speaking of the devil, James comes trotting out a side alley with a couple of other civilians along with him. I think that was the last of them, bro. Not a purple blood in sight. Powell sighs tiredly. Ever since he'd killed a bunch of the aliens that were trying to get to him in his apartment, he had been caught up in an orgy of blood and destruction, rallying his neighbors and then the street, then the block. Once he had proven that the aliens could be killed, others had followed his example. Have you been able to reestablish contact army command? James shakes his head dismissively. Nah, the aliens blew up the power plants. We're all out of juice. No trains, no nothing. Well, that was annoying. Ever since the battery of the old museum piece of a radio they had scavenged out of the old telecom museum had run out. They hadn't heard as much as a squeak from the army. But it seems like they're about to contact us. James points at a point in the sky behind Powell. As he turns around, he sees the unmistakable silhouette of a Gravedigger-class hovergun ship. Well, everyone, start clearing the street. We need to make a landing spot, Powell shouted with a smile. And the weary defenders start dragging debris and corpses off the street as James tries to wave in the hovercraft. It was odd, in a way, to see a squad of jarheads armed with nothing but baseball racks, batons, and bayonets. But as the soldiers landed across from them on the newly made landing site, Powell salutes them. One of the soldiers, decorated as a captain, steps out of the craft. Who's Sergeant Powell? Powell releases his salute. That'd be me, sir. The captain grins. I heard the situation over the radio. You're a goddamn hero, son. He pats Powell on the shoulder. Now you said something about an intact alien landing craft. Powell nods. Just over here, sir. The captain smiles. Excellent. Let's give those bastards a surprise they never expected. Men, move out. Secure the vessel. Techie, figure out how to run it. I want that vessel up in the air in less than fifteen. Let's show those fuckers what the war marines can do. There was a resounding oorah as the marines went to work. Powell stops the captain as he's about to leave. Pardon me, sir, but do you have any aspirin on the hovercraft? I have a hangover like you wouldn't believe. Operator Gatlan noticed that the landing craft approaching the slave carrier was flying in a wobbly manner. But considering the state down below, he wasn't surprised. The primitives had proven to be monsters, relying on crude battering weapons to wreak havoc on the glorious Falan troops. Surely the squad pilot has become injured in the melee. Medics to landing bay one, wounded incoming. The operator called into his mic. Then he switched to the internal comm of the landing craft. Hang on, I'm assuming direct control. Medics are waiting. Stand by. 
Private McCallan of the 51st Marine Battalion sat uncomfortably on the ship benches aboard the small landing craft. They hadn't been able to strap themselves into the seats, as the straps supposed to keep them in place proved to be very unfit for human occupation. He took deep breath after deep breath from the respirator and praised God that the ship they had scavenged had some sort of internal momentum stoppers, making the trip far smoother than it had any right to be. Even though the alien voice filling the radio with weird clicks and growls had rustled their collective jimmies, it wasn't followed by the craft being consumed in fire, so they must have somehow managed to avoid detection. Captain Jim grabbed the tech officer's shoulder. Bring us as close to that bridge thing there as possible. He pointed at what looked to be a glass dome in the front of the ship they were approaching. The tech officer sighed. I have still not managed to override the alien's remote control. I can't make her run any faster. He was talking about the portable computer he had brought along to try to interface with the onboard technology of the alien vessel. The tools had proven pitifully incompatible, but you can't fault the man for trying. Jim releases the shoulder of the tech officer. Well, doesn't matter now. Ready up, boys, we're going in. When the blast doors opened, McCallan got to see his first alien without the silvery battle armor. They were green things, averaging at about one and a half meters in length. And the reports he'd heard seemed correct. The buggers were primarily quadrupedal. They seemed surprised as the Marines burst out in the landing bay. McCallan throws himself over one of the creatures. After all, Command had said they wanted some prisoners to interrogate when they had managed to capture the bigger ship. As McCallan landed on top of the creature, all that was heard was a sickening crunch and a last pained squawk of a dying alien. McCallan could feel the purple sticky goop that passed for alien brain matter and blood seeping through his combat harness. He wants to throw up but keeps it in, straining to keep his composure. The others had already done short work of the other aliens and were now charging after fleeing aliens, who more likely than not were scrambling for their weapons. Operator Goethe Lan had been observing the craft as it landed in Landing Bay 1. He was now frozen in terror as he witnessed the primitives from the planet down below streaming out of the craft. There's a dozen of them, and they're all wielding crude, horrible weaponry. One of the primitives was just now getting up from having thrown himself on one of the medics, and Operator Gutlan could see the blood covering the front of the creature's chest, gleaming purple in the white light of the landing bay. What cruel species could even conceive of such a way to kill another? The primitives were now rampaging through the maintenance and emergency response crews, tearing through the unprotected men and women like wild beasts. None made it to the weapons locker. Operator Gutlan pressed the alarm button. Hell had arrived. The Marines were now fighting their way through the tight, illuminated corridors of the ship. As the aliens now had managed to arm and armor themselves, progress was slow. McCallan was thrown to the ground as the entire ship groaned and swayed in the air, its anti-grav engines desperately attempting to stabilize the vessel. While the humans weren't harshly affected, the lowered gravity on the ship making it feel more like a minor bump than a major fall. The same cannot be said about the squids that had been on board even before the humans boarded the ship. Damage report. Someone tell me what the fuck just happened, Captain Jim snaps, and the tech officer looks up from the myriad of consoles he's been looking over. Well, from what I can tell, we were just hit by a projectile fired by Jupiter. As to damage, I haven't the slightest. The captain grinds his teeth a little. Well, find a way to get us out of the firing line. I don't want to die before we manage to get this hunk of junk back to the higher-ups. The techie clears his throat. 
Er, I don't know how to say this. He motions over the console with mysterious glyphs and runes blinking and flashing all over. I'm an engineer, not a linguist. Even if I were, it'd take me days to decipher that... His sentence was cut off by another impact. The captain gets up on his feet. We don't have days. Now we can press some buttons and hope for the best or die for sure. He presses the big red button on the middle of the console and a countdown starts on the screen, accompanied by an alien voice on the radio. McAllen stares in disbelief. Jim had pressed the big red button. You never press the big red button. Erm, madam, they're powering up the subspace drive. The nervous scanner tech looks up from his post to inform the marshal of the development aboard the human-occupied slaver ship. They what? She can't believe it. Like this cycle couldn't get any worse, soon there were going to be humans out there, in the vastness of the galaxy. Track them. I need to know where they end up. Redirect battle frigate Wrath of Gulan and Tears of Logu. I want Gurulk's dusk destroyed and all humans eradicated. Liz, take them all. Move the zenith to begin orbital bombardment. But marshal the slaves. The lieutenant started, but before he managed to complete his sentence, the marshal glared at him, demanding silence. They're not worth the hassle. Exterminate the lot of them. McAllen is struck by a mixture of relief and surprise when instead of the expected self-destruct, the ship was instead enveloped in an opaque blue light and started to hum softly. For a moment, everything seemed to be going well. That is, until the blue light vanished. He could hear the air leaking out of the ship, and what is obviously some sort of warning siren blaring. The impacts had damaged the structural integrity of the ship. Out of the frying pan and into the freezer, McAllen thought morbidly. The captain snaps him out of his submission to a dark fate of floating through space for all eternity. Tech, take Scotty and Quentin, find that leak and plug it. I don't care if you have to use the alien corpses to fucking do it, just get it done. McAllen rises from his seat and follows the tech officer towards the sound of the leak. Angren was raised from his slumber by the familiar voice of the AI sounding in his ear. Fala vessel detected. Protocol 412 engaged. Please return to your station, High Lord. Angron groans and stands up from his meditative position and looks over the meadow in the eversleep that he had been dozing in. Well then, AI, extract me, wake the men. Angron experienced a moment of true darkness, with a dizzying feeling akin to that of falling from a great height. Then he awakens, truly this time, his metal self still seated in the command throne of the tomb ship he had placed in his command. Behind him his soldiers were whirring to life. The slavers will regret waking the Demios AI. Scan the vessel. I want a full repot. Now. Of course, High Lord. Scanning. The ship is a slaver-class carrier ship. It has two structural defects, seemingly from laser pulse impacts. 212 life forms detected on board. 203 Dwillian life signatures. And the remaining nine. Unknown species. Further data unavailable. No scannable implants. Odd. A hijacked Fala slaver, maybe? Angron's thoughts are interrupted. Warning. Subspace signatures detected. Falan Talon class frigates. Everybody stand by. Let's watch what happens next. Captain Jim was looking out the transparent frontal dome of the alien ship, gazing out over unknown planets and unknown stars. And that's when he sees it. Another ship. And it's big. It looks more like a medieval cathedral like those he'd seen in Europe when visiting the eastern parts of the war. But it is so much larger. 
By the asteroids passing between them and the ship, he could wager a guess as to the size of the ship, and it was bigger than the one he was standing in, so much bigger. The ship's towers and spires, accompanied by grandiose statues of alien design, were truly awe-inspiring. Then his attention was drawn elsewhere. Blue holes appeared in the space just ahead, and two new ships appear. These have the organic curves and shaping of the aliens that attacked Earth. The warning lights were flashing again. The two new ships are attacking. The two new ships were attacking the first. Interesting. Angron didn't quite know what to make of the situation, and through his uplink he knew that his fellows in the command deck felt the same way. AI, scan the two new ships. Fallen attack frigates of Tai. Skip the specs. Tell me about the crew. Each ship carries fifty life forms. Implant scan identifies them as Falan. Power up the ship. Destroy the slavers. What happened next took Jim entirely by surprise. As the two smaller vessels started bombarding their captured scrap bucket with blasts of blue-white energy, most of which was luckily absorbed by some sort of energy bubble surrounding them, the foreign ship suddenly lit up. The two hostile ships started bombarding the newcomer to the fight turning their attention away from Jim's ship. A beam of utter blackness, so dark that it seemed to distort the light of the stars itself, flashed out from the church ship thing. Moments later, the leftmost enemy ship was thorn asunder, as if caught in the hands of some raging god. Angron felt a buzz of happiness as the antimatter lance tore through the Phalan frigate's shields and hull. Antimatter lance cooling down. Cooldown will conclude in one minute. Display cooldown on screen. Prepare secondary weapons arrays and enable the subspace blocker. No matter what happened, the fallen navy must never know of the position of the tomb ship. If they were tracked, a million Demiosian souls would be lost. Engage! Secondary weapons array readied. Shields at 90%. Subspace blocker enabled. Angron felt a tickle of excitement rush through his metallic spine. If he had a heart, it would be beating rapidly now. Even though a mere two frigates were nothing next to a tomb ship, a battle is always a battle, and only a fool would underestimate an enemy from equipment and numbers alone. Jim watches the theater playing out before them. The mighty church ship was now responding to the much smaller ship's fire with bolts of green, most of which are absorbed by the barriers of the smaller ship. But those that get through burn holes in her hull. Jim felt relief and fear both. On one side, the big ship Today has been a good day, Faglag thought to herself as she gazed out into space, watching the machines with souls drones rip asunder two of the master's crafts. After all, she mused, today the pink ones had boarded the skyboat where she and her kin were held as slaves. She had seen the pink ones destroy the masters utterly, and now the kind machines with souls were removing the master's evil metal from their heads, and soon she'd witnessed the death of even more of the masters. Her facial tentacles writhed with joy. She had prayed to the god of murky waters so long for this day, and the pink ones are truly the heralds of the god's will. McAllen twisted uncomfortably as the power armor settled around his body. Cap, why are we wearing these things? They didn't help the lizards any. The captain, whose form had already been successfully encased, draws another breath through the newly lit cigarette sticking out of his mouth. Because the demio said so. You didn't complain when they upgraded your rifle, now stop squirming. Angren watched the humans with amusement. While it was true that the armor given to the humans was hardly the finest work the Demios could do, 
It was the best they could nanite forge in the half-hour that they were taking to prepare. And while the power armor wielded by the Phalon hadn't proved efficient against human melee potential, the one provided by the Demios had no such thing in mind. The armor's sole purpose was to improve the human's already frightening strength and provide heat absorption to deal with the pulse weapons used by their common foe. Additionally, the Demios engineers had taken the liberty to upgrade the human automatic carbine rifle design, turning the pea-shooters into miniature railguns. Time is up. We make way for Earth, Angron says as the humans finally finish suiting up. General Gordon was not happy. This fight had started so well, and now they were forced to hide in the WW3 nuclear bunkers like rodents. In truth, he was quite happy that the bunkers were there. After all, if they hadn't been, the death toll would be up in the hundred millions by now. The first bombs had come so suddenly. The aliens targeting power plants, hospitals, water purification plants, civilians. The death toll had climbed so rapidly. Then there were the good news. The war spatial flotilla, as well as the equivalents from C and the MMA, had turned around from their skirmish around Phobos, over mineral rights, and had turned back and took the enemy up the rear. While Earth had been rendered mostly blind, the Martians had now provided them with all their own sensory equipment. The enemy fleet had consisted of five medium-sized vessels, frigates, of which two had disappeared an hour ago. The remaining three were shielding the massive mothership that was now orbiting Earth. Beyond the mothership, itself easily five kilometers across, there had been fifteen smaller vessels that had been carrying the doomed landing parties. One of these had departed after the war marines had successfully boarded her. The Martian scanner tech currently on the other side of a direct feed from Mars suddenly exclaimed, Sir, more contacts incoming. The Martian telescope was redirected as the small vessel returned. Gordon's heart sank in his chest. They didn't make it away, huh? Gatarin looked as the slaver returned. What is that thing still doing in one piece? Get me wrath and tears on subspace comms now! The communications officer starts tweaking his console. No response, ma'am. We can't reach them. Gatarin froze mid-snarl. There was a second ship. Her eyes grew wide and blood drained from her face. Her mouth slammed shut, and her fingers clenched the soft padding of the command chair. It was a Demiasian tomb ship. Her heart beat fast, and for the first time since this battle began, she feels fear. Not of the sickeningly effective space torpedoes used by the primitives that simply slid through their ship's shields. Not of raging primitives seeking to crush her with their hands. An ancient enemy approached. The Undying are here. Angron couldn't help but feel impressed as he entered the Sol system. This people that hadn't even developed subspace drives yet were fighting the Phalans in space. And they were doing damn well. Angron could easily discern two dead frigates, spilling men and atmosphere into the vacuum, and he could see a third one being bombarded by tiny little projectiles, wedging through the energy shields and then impacting with the frigate's hull, punching holes in it until they hit something vital. Even though the Phalan's fighters were more agile and the humans lacked shields, the Navy bravely soldiered on. They were persistent and dedicated. He'd give them that. And he made note to recover each of their bodies after the fight was done and return it to their people. They all deserved a hero's funeral. Fire the antimatter lance, target the world cracker, let the humans deal with the talons, launch drones to assist the human fighters, engage. Drones launched. Antimatter Lance cooldown will finish in one minute. 
He witnessed the streak of darkness cripple the World Cracker's engines. She wasn't going anywhere. So here they were, back where they started, McAllen mused. Though this time they were doing something even more insane. The Marines were seated in a piece of Demiossian engineering genius. The Demiossians had called it a manned torpedo, and that is pretty much all there is to say about it. Their goal was to slam right into the crippled mothership, murder the command, plant a bomb in the core, and get themselves and the slaves stuck on board to the escape shuttles. He had to admit he found the Demiossian regard for non-Falan life comforting. It seemed the dead had the best understanding of what it means to be alive, and how precious that life is. But back to the task at hand. Time to do some killing. The cheers that resounded in the command bunker when the newcomers had proven not only to be friendly, but enemies of the invaders was indescribable. The torpedoes that had been able to deal devastating blows to the frigates and fighters had proven to be useless on the heavy plating of the mothership. But the new aliens had ripped apart its engines in a single shot. They were now anxiously waiting for shot number two, but it never came. Gitarin wondered why the undying had stopped. They had ripped apart the Zenith's engines in a single blast of their infernal doom weapon. But then, as the grinding of metal piercing through metal screamed through the corridors of the Zenith, she understood why. They had a different doom in store for her. McAllen was the first to burst out of the torpedo. Gun in hand, he jumped out of the enclosed space into the corridor. The alien pulsar fire was absorbed by his armor as his Demiossian-crafted automatic railgun shred the resistance. There were a lot of the lizards. Hundreds, all crammed into the narrow corridors. When his ammo ran out, he used the reinforced stock of the rifle as a mace, thundering on through. Even though he had doubted it at first, the armor made him feel like a monster. Nay, a god of war. When he reached the command center, he could see her immediately. The commanding officer was sitting perched atop a throne of the finest of materials, wearing a exorbitant robe clearly signaling her rank. She saw him, and she fainted. The would-be conqueror was now the prisoner of humanity. The human's message was rung out through the halls of the World Cracker. The ship was doomed. Within minutes the core would explode. Anyone who surrendered unconditionally would be allowed to board the escape shuttles bound for the planet below. All Dwillians were to leave immediately, being granted special boarding privileges. 